episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Sydney Kudaviz, Licensed Master Social Worker, who will be discussing her area of specialty, Demystifying the Response and Treatment of Child Abuse. Welcome to the show, Sydney. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So tell us, what are your credentials and experience? So I am a, like you said, an LMSW. I have been a social worker um, close to five years in in Texas. Very cool. Uh, Where did you go to school? Texas State. Nice. Mm -hmm. So seeing as though you're a social worker, I thought it would be, you may be a good person to ask this question. So my understanding is that there are three different types of licensure one can obtain as a social worker. Those would be like, is it an LBSW or a BSW? Yeah, I think it's a a BSW. And then LMSW and LCSW. Can you talk to us a little bit about the differences and requirements in education between these? And what about the differences in the types of employment opportunities in each of these different licenses? Sure. So to be a bachelor social worker, you have to have an undergraduate degree, I believe, in social work. And then you take an exam um, and you pass the BSW exam. Uh, And that basically, um, it's sort of like certified that you have done social work courses, but you're not a fully licensed social worker. Um, I kind of skipped that process. So my undergraduate degree is actually in political science. Um, And so I went right to grad school. Um, And so I have my LMSW, meaning I completed a two-year graduate degree program in social work and sat for the board licensing exam. And so then the next level is an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. And so to be one of those, you have to complete a certain amount of clinical hours um, under supervision of an LCSW supervisor and then sit for a second exam. 
So I uh, am in the process of working on my hours. I have a good chunk done. So I have about uh, four or five months until I complete my clinical and it's, I can't, I think it's 360 hours. Don't quote me on that, but it's a certain amount of clinical hours you have to have. It takes about two years. Um, If you work full time, it should be a two year process. Um, And so only certain positions, the more clinical type positions, because as a social worker, you can do such a variety of things. You can do case Mm -hmm. management, you can be a school counselor, you can be an individual therapist. Um, And so certain kinds of positions count for clinical work. And so the board, social work board has to approve that. Gotcha. Um, What about the differences in the types of employment opportunities? Yeah, so LCSWs, um, they are able, so both LMSWs and LCSWs can work in hospitals, they can work for uh, victim services, they can work at schools. Um, As an LCSW, you're able to take insurance. And so that's the biggest difference. as a BSW, it's a it's it's very different because you're not um, a fully licensed social worker at all. So, and I never was that. So, I don't know exactly um, where a lot of BSWs fall in terms of employment. But, I've seen a lot of BSWs in like nonprofits. Yeah, exactly. I think, and that's sort of like I think like a good segue, you know, before they go mm-hmm. back to their LMSW. Um, but so LMSWs and LCSWs can both see clients privately. Um, things like that, but only LCSW can take insurance. Um, And usually they're more, um, have more experience in the one-on-one private counseling. They may work um, more like mental health hospitals, things like that. Um, The sort of higher up in the counseling field. Got it. Okay. Okay. So now my understanding is that you work at a hospital And at this hospital, there are various teams that you work on. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so um, I work on one specific team, but so how a hospital works um, in terms of social work there, and this is how most hospitals in my experience work, the particular, the one I work at, there are four social workers. And so they are the ones who work with patients admitted to the floor. They make sure they have everything they need in terms of medic, like understanding medications, understanding the diagnosis, if they have other housing needs, transportation, things like that, provide them with support. Um, there's also specialty social workers who maybe work um, in the emergency department or who work um, with children with cancer, things like that. I work, my sort of specialty niche is we, I'm a part of a consult service in the hospital that is a child abuse um, specific team. And so everybody on my team, we work in the child abuse field. Okay. Okay. So is being a social worker, your first career? Um, it is. So I, I was an undergrad political science major, thought I wanted to do poli sci work on like campaigns, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm from the DC area. And so I went to school undergrad and degree at American university um, quickly realized I wanted to help on a different level that campaigns were a little too macro for me. I like sort of the micro, um, in terms of helping. And so I graduated with my undergrad in poli sci, moved to Texas, kind of spent a year just working, doing a couple different things, figuring out, you know, I knew I thought I wanted to do, um, 
social work, but there's also, obviously you can get your LPC or there's other ways to get to the counseling mm-hmm. avenue. So just kind of figuring out um, which one was right for me, but yes, I would say this is my first, you know, professional career. What drew you to being a social worker? And did you always know you wanted to be like in a hospital setting, for example? Yeah, actually. Um, so working in the child abuse field, I, that's something I never really um, thought about at all. I was really lucky and able to intern at um, the Travis County Child Advocacy Center, um, just kind of almost a, a random internship I had. Um, I worked, interned at communities and schools. You know, I really thought I wanted, I knew I, I wanted to work with children. Um, that's sort of my passion, um, children and teens. And so I thought I would be like a school counselor, or a school social worker, or do individual counseling. Counseling um, Had this opportunity at the Center for Child Protection, and I really loved it. And so that kind of is what got me into child abuse specifically. Um, in terms of social work, no, I didn't always know I wanted to do that. I, I pretty quickly figured out in undergrad that I wanted to do something psychology related. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just sort of social work made the most sense. And I'm glad that I chose this path. Cool, cool. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music, pets, etc. Yeah, I am a big reader. Um, unfortunately, during the pandemic, uh, I think my my reading has uh, lessened, unfortunately, but uh, definitely a big TV watcher, um, TV, movies, board games. Um, I have a dog, Redford, who is a, a Pomeranian. He's a rescue. Um, he's the love of my life. <laughs> he's <laughs> probably about eight years old. Um, I've had him for about three years, three, four years. Um yeah, just kind of exploring all that Austin has to offer. Um, love, love watering holes, Barton Springs, all that kind of stuff. When there's water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When there's water. Yeah, uh, that's true. Very true. It's always a bummer when you go down there, you know, and it's like, I mean, May or June and there's just nothing that happened right. to me once. It yeah, sucks because you're expecting water and then it's nothing but like, you know, bone dry. Yeah, I'll even take a pool. That's fine. Just like put yeah. me by body water. <laughs> I'm very happy. Um, but yeah, happy, happy to be having hopefully a little bit more of a normal summer again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially now with the new uh, CDC recommendation about masks. Yes. Huh? <laughs> okay. Well, in talking about child abuse, just so we're all on the same page, can you define what child abuse is? and the various types of abuse that may occur. Yeah, so I actually, um, I pulled up the the Texas code. Um, I can talk about it just from my own experience, but just I can also add that as well. Um, so child abuse can include multiple different kinds. There's physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, um, medical abuse, emotional abuse, um, all those different kinds of things. Uh, the way it's defined here um, in Texas is mental or emotional injury to a child that results in an observable and material impairment in the child's growth, development, or psychological functioning, uh, causing or permitting the child to be in a situation in which the child sustains a mental or emotional injury uh, that results in impairment. So physical injury is covered um, failure and also covers failure failure to make a reasonable effort to prevent any of those things Mm -hmm. 
It also talks about uh, sexual misconduct with the child, um, human trafficking, child pornography, things like that. Okay, okay. All those are covered in kind of the child abuse field, I would say. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, just also to, to make things a little more clear, child abuse can happen in one instant or across uh, a period of time, right? I just want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, I, yes. As, I, from what I'm understanding, you're saying there can be, you're saying like one situation that may happen or it can be um, happened. For, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, it can be one situation where a child is caught in domestic violence, violent situation, um, or it can be continue, continuous child abuse. Um, some of the, I'm not an expert on the criminal side, um, but I'm a little bit familiar. And there's even like a definition for a higher penalty of continuous sexual abuse of a child. So yes, there's continuous. And then there's sort of like a one-off situation. And, you know, something that I don't think a lot of people realize is that in domestic violence situations, say, we'll we'll just use a a cishet couple example here, say a woman is holding her child Mm -hmm. and the man hits her or pushes her, that would also fall under child abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Witnessing um, violence Mm -hmm. or witnessing domestic violence is its own thing, but also potential injury that can happen um, during a, a violent situation. Absolutely. Okay. So what specific signs can medical and mental health care professionals, neighbors, friends, family, et cetera, look out for that could indicate that child abuse is potentially occurring? Yeah. So child abuse is tricky um, because kids it, outcrying, we call it an outcry when they um, make a statement of abuse happening to them. It is hard for kids to outcry and it often does not happen in the moment. Um, it happens weeks, months, years later. Um, something someone explained to me once, that's one of my favorite things I use in talking to parents is for a child out crying about abuse is like jumping off a cliff and hoping that there's a net at the bottom to catch them. They have no idea. Um, so a lot of fear. So a lot, yeah. And so a lot of times that stuff does come out in behaviors and it's hard because these behaviors that I'm going to list, they could be from other things as well. Um, Aggression, um, complaining of stomach aches, um, isolation, um, you know, all this kind of stuff that, like I said, any sign of, Hey, something's kind of funky, you know, it could be something as normal as, you know, parents are getting divorced and kiddo is going through something, or it could be, um, abuse, aggression, sexually acting out, um, hoarding food, say it again, hoarding food, hoarding. Yeah, exactly. Any, any sort of maladaptive behaviors can be a sign. I think the list is so big, it's hard to, to go through. Um, but it's definitely a lot of it is there and it's with kids. I think a lot of it is like hindsight is 2020. When I talk Mm -hmm. to parents, you know, I go through and say, what are some do you have any behavior concerns with kiddos? And they go, well, you know, now I realize that they come home and shut themselves in their room. And I thought they were just being a teenager, you know, or they complain of constant stomach aches, um, nightmares, trouble falling asleep, um, re- having a reversal in bedwetting. Those are all things that can be signs. Anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah. You know, is the, is an anxiety happening because a kiddo is starting a new school grade or because there is something happening 
Um, so it's hard, it's hard to use signs only, but, it, but they mm-hmm. are important to look out for. Absolutely. And of course, you know, that's beyond any sorts of physical indications, like unexplainable bruises, you know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the phys- We can talk about the physical stuff too, um, because it, a lot of times um, it's not easy just to go by injuries alone. Because um, mm. kids are kids. Kids are kids, bruises fade. You have to know specific specific indications. And I can talk about that too. Um, yeah. Locations on the body where if you see them, that you should be concerned based mm-hmm. on the age. Um, but kids hide, you know. Um, I've seen parents who tell kids to wear long sleeves to school, um, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. What other sorts of uh, physical indications and like places might there be be bruising? Yeah, so um, things that give really big alarm bells to us in this field are bruising on the ear or behind the ear. Um, it's actually really hard to bruise the ear. It's kind of a soft, um, foldable area that if it gets hit, it'll kind of bend with whatever is being hit with it. So if there's bruises behind the ear, that can be pulling, boxing, yanking. Um, and it all depends on the age of the child, right? A, a child who does, is a baby and doesn't walk shouldn't have bruises, right? On right. Like, without a history, things happen, right? Kids fall, they drop, they roll over. Like that's a hundred percent normal. But a child who is not able to walk should have a history of why there are injuries on them. You know, bruises to the shin are totally normal. That's a normal part of a child who is able to walk. You know, run around. Um, but injuries, you know, on the face without, without, you know, an explanation behind them on the torso, um, things like that. The ears are the biggest ones because it's very rare. Um, it's really hard to get an injury behind the ear in the ear without, um, having a really clear explanation of what happened. That's a big indicator. Um, but kids are kids, you know, that doesn't mean just because a kid has a bruise or anything like that. Also, you cannot date bruises, um, that's kind of a big myth too, is, you know, we think you look at a bruise and, oh, it's kind of like greenish or yellow. It must be old. Um, but everybody bruises differently. Mm-hmm. And so there's no way to look at a bruise and say that's three days old or something happened four days ago, or that's not that deep. Um, all a bruise shows is that injury happened, but some people may not bruise at all, or some people may get really deep purple bruises. Some might not even get to that purple stage. They just get to a light yellow, you know, so, um, bruises tell you something happened, but not when it happened. And, you know, I think another misconception that I'd like to, to mention is that, you know, most people assume that child abuse can just occur from an adult to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's child and child abuse. Um, Absolutely. Um, the most common I would see is um, child on child sexual abuse. Um, that does happen um, fairly often or sexual assault, um, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, it, yeah, the right, the age difference does, does matter. Um, mm-hmm. it also matters in terms of the criminal code as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Anyone can be a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. I mean, even siblings, if uh, an older mm-hmm. sibling is beating up on their younger sibling, mm-hmm. that could be considered child abuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that definitely, you know, and I think it depends like how far you would escalate it. Like if there's a family dynamic thing going on, it's clearly mm-hmm. counseling that needs to get involved, you know, so things like that. But absolutely. Yeah. Child abuse can 
it can happen in so many different kinds of situations. So can you tell me more about, um, you know, you, you had mentioned it depends on the age, like between the children and, sure. you know, that as far as like criminal penalties and, mm. and the like, do you, do you know, do you happen to know a little more about that? Yeah. So the, the age of criminal responsibility um, is, forgive me, 10 or it's 12. Um, I believe um, I think 10 is the youngest they would ever look at any sort of like criminal um, thing happening. Don't quote me on that. Cause now I'm forgetting if it's 10 or 12, but there's a very specific age where anything younger than that law enforcement would never even get involved. Um, there's also in terms of sexual abuse, there's in the state of Texas, there's like an age difference, you know, um, in terms of what is cons- when you're able to consent um, to sex and when you're not, have to look up the exact numbers because now they're uh, getting out of my head. But, um, you know, so age and cognitive level does make a difference, right? Um, so even if the children are of the same age, right? Um, say there's sexual abuse concerns between two 13-year-olds, maybe, you know, but one is in special education or has a different cognitive ability, um, you know, that's something you would look at as well. hmm mm-hmm. I'm looking at something that says, well, the age of consent in Texas is 17. Is Yeah, it's, um, I think it's, it's kind of funky. I think it's actually younger than that. I'm looking it up too. So um, it's technically 14. 14, yeah. yeah. So the technical. But the age differential of three years. Yeah, and so, and so within three years of 14, yes. And so. Um, anything below 14, like even if it's two 12 year olds, they cannot consent to sexual activity with each other. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. So we know that medical and mental health care professionals, as well as others, such as like teachers are considered to be mandatory reporters Mm -hmm. and are required to report suspected child abuse within 48 hours of becoming aware that something is going on. Mm -hmm. When a professional makes a report, who do they report this to? Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about the mandated reporting um, because actually in the state of Texas, everybody is a mandated reporter, um, whether you are a professional or not. Um, It's in the the penal code. Um, Now, it's specified that professionals have kind of a certain like extra responsibility. um, And penalties. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that. Um, So it says a professional means an individual who is licensed or certified by the state or is an employee of a facility licensed, certified or operated by the state and who in the normal course of official duty or duties um, or license or certification is required as direct contact with children. This can include teachers, nurses, nurses, doctors, daycare workers, employees of a clinic, healthcare, reproductive services, juvenile services, correctional officers, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but technically it's, it does say, um, anyone who has a suspicion is required to make a report. Um, and so it does say that the professional shall not make a report later than 48 hours and cannot, um, have someone else make the report for them, which is a big one that comes up. Um, and so what happens, I'll kind of walk through the steps of what happens when you make a report. Um, my advice, make a report as soon as possible, you know, try not to wait. Um, and so you would, there's two ways you can go. You can call the Texas abuse hotline, which is really an easy number. You just Google it. Um, or you can make a report online. Um, a report online, I would say 
only use that if it's something really non-urgent. Um, but I would say, go ahead and call. Um, you're going to probably have to wait 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's just part of it. I've waited upwards of 60 minutes. I've made oh, yeah. probably hundreds of CPS reports. Uh, maybe not that quite that much, but a lot in my four years you know, more in this field. And so you make a report to a screener. And so that is their only job is to screen cases. And they're looking to see, does it raise to the mandated legal requirements? Um, And so they're going to ask you questions about the home, what the concern is. And so CPS only investigates concerns that are inside the home or like within a home life um, or a school or like, so there's, there's um, CPS and there's also CCL child care licensing and they're kind of all part of under the same umbrella. And so if you have a concern about someone at a daycare, they would go to them, but um, child protective services, and I'm using, there's actually a specific term for, um, they're actually child protective investigators that the name has changed in the state of Texas, but I'm going to say just CPS because it's a term we all kind of understand and know what that means. Um, And so when they are screening, they're trying to figure out, is there a concern for any of these abuses, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, medical neglect, um, medical abuse, human trafficking, um, things like that. Uh, if it does raise to that level, they will then send it off to be investigated. Um, and so they will send it to a router who assigns it to a unit. So you, when you make a call, you're talking to a screener and they have mandated okay. questions they have to ask. Um, but really when you, talk to them. I always say, tell people, make it clear, understand where, you know, explain where the concern is coming from. If it's in the home, outside the home, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when we make a report, we also have to have information like, I mean, it's helpful if you have like names, dates of birth, mm-hmm. addresses, phone yeah, numbers. You know, don't, I tell people not to get caught up in that because I think sometimes it can be like, oh my gosh, I have to have all this information. Right. Just You just have the minimal like child's name and date of birth um, or the caregiver's name. Like don't get too caught up. I, would, cause I think right. that can be sort of like an, an anxiety producing thing of like, they're going to ask me all these questions. I don't know the answer. They'll take whatever information you have to give. <laughs> yeah. Just say, don't have it. Or, you know, i yeah, just say, don't have any of this info. Here's what I have. And that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So if a family member, friend, neighbor, et cetera, suspects child abuse is occurring in a home, why should they, and who should they report this to? And, you know, I think a big question that people have is like, are they able to make a report anonymously? Absolutely. You can make a report anonymously. Um, and so I do, since we are talking about CPS and these systems, I do want to also talk about the fact that with CPS, there are lots of concerns of white supremacy, um, issues of racism, all those kind of stuff. And so I just, right. I want to definitely name it. And that's a whole podcast we could talk about separate. Um, and so those concerns, um, you know, concerns of economic status, making report, all those things are like very valid. Um, And so I just want to also say that research shows child abuse happens equally across uh, race lines and socioeconomic status. So so child abuse happens equally amongst all different groups. Um, There is an imbalance of where it's reported. Right. Um, And so people of color, families of color, it is reported more 
than with white families, white upper-class families. Um, so there's an issue in reporting, but abuse happens the same in amount of those households. So just wanted to say that um, because that can also be a concern of why people don't report, right? Right. Um, and so concerned about what's going to happen, right? Are families going to get split up, all this stuff. But always, if you have a concern, make a report. And here's why. I've made enough reports to, if it's not something they can investigate or don't have a concern, they will just close it. It will not move further. Like they are not, they are so busy. They are not trying to add any more cases than they have to do to their caseload. Um, and that's another thing too. I've worked with a lot of investigators, CPS investigators, and they are overworked, underpaid. Oh, so, so much so. I could never do, I, I support uh-uh. them a lot. So part of a lot of what I do is getting them information they need and working with them, making sure they understand what's going on from our end and the medical side, but I could never do their job. Um, they are, they do amazing work for, and you know, uh, people who never want to have to hear from them or talk to them. But what I tell people is if you have a concern about, yeah, neighbor, family, friends, something like that, that piece may be the piece of the puzzle that CPS needed mm-hmm. to solidify their concern. Because this is what happens a lot, right? They get a lot of reports of kind of vague concerns, they investigate, but there's not enough to really make a determination. But what you see or have a concern of can be that last piece of the puzzle. And that child is depending on you. The, those children are depending on you to make a report um, and help them if there is a concern of abuse. Um, like I said, things go through lots of different cases and reports go through lots of different people before it even gets to be assigned. You know, they have, there's lots of people that are part of these cases. So um, you could be, you only see one little piece of what's going on, but there could be a whole world of, you know, trauma you're not seeing. Right. So once CPS or which falls under the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services receives a report, what happens from there? They receive a report. Um, if it gets approved uh, to go through, you know, there's, a, there's enough concerns, something that's happening in the home, it goes to a unit and then it goes to the, a worker. And it, it all depends on what, um, there's lots of, what, what type of abuse they're concerned about, right? So there's um, like different levels. There's like priorities of cases. So if they're concerned that there is sexual abuse going on in that home with a caregiver, father, aunt, uncle who lives in the home, they're going to investigate it as like they have a certain hour requirement they need to meet. So cases get sorted into these different priority levels. And so based on the priority level determines when they will go out and make contact with the family and start the investigation process. Um, So for example, if, um, you know, they're, we make a report on physical abuse and that child is admitted to the hospital. Okay. They have a safe place to be that night. You know, mm-hmm. they may come out the next morning. Um, but definitely things like sexual abuse, they're going to act immediately. Those are, you know, priority, high priority cases. Which, which leads me to our next question, which is in your experience, what sorts of cases generally require that the child be immediately removed from the guardian's care? Are these children placed with family, uh, if appropriate and available, or are they put into a children's home or the foster care system? So, um, and I'm going to talk since I'm not, I've never been a part of CPS, but I have a lot of familiarity. I'm going to talk to it as best as I can. 
Um, first off, it is part of their code that if a child is removed, they have to look at family members first. So the caregivers, legal caregivers or that child are able to give them a list of people and say, here's all the family that this child can go with. So they always start with family that that's like required family or family friends. So the parent caregivers are able to provide a list of people, you know, where the child can go. Now CPS has to check them out, right? Do they have a CPS record? These people themselves, right. they have a criminal record, you know, do they meet the, the CPS requirements of being a caregiver? So a child would only go to foster care if there's no other family who can take them or those family members don't meet CPS's standards. You know, maybe they have a criminal history or things like that. Um, but also it's important to know that CPS cannot just take children. Um, I, I think there's a lot of misconception of that. Um, things have to get improved by a judge. Not saying that system is perfect either, but I, there's this idea that they can just take children. Um, definitely is not true. More often, I feel like in my opinion, sometimes I've seen, man, I wish this child was removed. I have high concern about these caregivers, you know, and the judge didn't approve it. Um, so yeah, so foster care is a, is and should be a last resort. Um, and so things happen quickly, like, and so parents also have some say, right? So in a sexual abuse case, say a child makes an outcry that father sexually abused them. If mothers set, if they agree to a safety plan where that father leaves the home, they're not going to take that child, right? If mom is being protective. So it's really about protectiveness. That's the biggest thing we're looking for. They're looking for how protective are these caregivers? You know, if a child makes an outcry of sexual abuse by somebody in that home, are the parents able to say, okay, that person has left the home or we're leaving the home. So, okay, we're not going to, you know, take that child. Um, but, you know, in physical abuse cases, a lot of the times, a lot of cases I work with are younger babies and children who can't make an outcry when that's really hard because we look at injuries and say, Hey, this child, this child has X amount of rib fractures and, you know, we're not sure who did this. Th that eliminates all those people who may have potential contact with that child. Um, so it really just depends. But if caregivers are willing to be protective, CPS wants to work with them, you know, it's not just going to take the child. Right. I mean, it's our responsibility to protect children Absolutely. any which way you look at it, no matter who you are. Absolutely. Um, so what, what sorts of cases, just giving us a little more uh, insight here, would require the immediate removal? Like, I know you said, like, they're looking for a protectiveness there, but would that include, like, um, like sexual abuse, if, mm -hmm. uh, sexual those abuse, sorts of things? Sexual abuse, if the perpetrator... So a lot of the times with sexual abuse cases, when they make an outcry, they usually make an outcry about a specific perpetrator. So if that child, if that person refuses to leave the home or the, another caregiver refuses to take them outside the home, that would probably be... Um, a removal. Gotcha. If there's a child injured and they don't know who could have caused these injuries, that would be a removal. Um, most likely, like I said, I, I'm not part of CPS, so I'm just speaking to my experience of working with them. Um, but cases where they don't know who the perpetrator is and there are injuries um, or sexual abuse, if you know there's not a way for that, if that caregiver is unwilling or can't 
leave that home. But usually they put in what they call a safety plan. And so a safety Mm -hmm. plan is something that the caregivers sign and agree to. And if they breach that safety plan, that could possibly be a removal. Um, But, you know, if a child makes an outcry that grandpa or uncle or someone, because most sexual abuse cases are someone they know. Um, I've been doing this for like four years and I can count on my hand the number of sexual abuse cases that are a random stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, unfortunately, it's going to be a relative or family friend, someone they know both parents agree that this child will not have any contact with that person. Okay. That's fine. You know? Um, so it really just depends, but yeah, anything immediate sexual abuse always, you know, as soon as possible, that child needs to be away from that person. Okay. Okay. Now I know that often when abuse is suspected in the home, CPS will require the guardians to undergo things like parenting classes, mandated counseling, substance abuse treatment, domestic violence classes, and and even drug testing, for example. In your experience, would you say that a large percentage of parents or guardians are able to maintain custody of their children long-term, or do you find that most children who are being abused wind up in the foster care system? Yeah. So um, it's hard because I don't always see cases all the way to the end. I am there in the first part of what's happening. Um, But from my experience, yes. I mean, a perpetrator of sexual abuse should never have uh, custody of that child again. So that's one thing. But, um, you know, there's things like excessive discipline or neglect or drug use in the home. Yes, they CPS is actually, and that's something too, when I talk to families who have a CPS investigator involved, CPS actually is a really good resource. And I try oh, to- they're such a good resource. Yeah, and so, and you know, because of TV and, and many valid experiences and whatnot, um, it's just seen as this like nuisance or this, you know, and I, and I fully understand that. But for families in need, they actually can provide a lot um, like I said, they, they absolutely provide fair, uh, parenting classes. They help parents get involved into rehab. Um, they're able to provide supplies. If, if you know, say a family um, is, doesn't have a car seat, someone makes a report, CPS report because a child is being transported without a car seat. That's a totally valid report, right? That's really dangerous. But from my experience, what I have seen, no CPS worker would just take that child. They would get them a car seat and make sure they knew how to use it and close their case. I've seen that happen mm-hmm. a fair amount of time, you know, um, make, get child into daycare, things like that. So they're actually really helpful and have a lot of resources. And that's actually what they're passionate about. Um, but unfortunately, you know, understandably, it's not always seen that way. But yes, I do see that happen a lot. Um, a lot of times kids are only in foster care temporarily um, until the, that parent can work services. Um, and services I've seen, yeah, healthy discipline, um, understanding developmental needs of a child. It's really helpful stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, I mean, there's there's been some times when I, I wouldn't say made a report, but rather like made a referral to CPS, you know, because somebody needed resources and they were able to help mm-hmm. them out with all sorts of different things. So yeah, if they need know. clothes or sometimes mm-hmm. they're, they're actually, they sometimes know more about like um, how to get like uh, an energy stipend or some of the like things I actually don't know more case managed mentee. They actually know more about that. Um, so yeah, they can actually be a really good tool. And I, and I have seen that relationship go well where a caregiver has actually been really thankful for a CPS worker 
like I said, I don't want to just paint paint them in this, you know, rosy light because they're just like anytime you work with people, there are people who are better at their job than others. You know what I mean? So, um, but part of the problem too, is there also is a really high turnover rate because it's such a hard job. So it's just awful. And so, you know, the, a lot of people are, are thrown in and they're having to learn, you know, trial by fire. Um, it's a very challenging position. Um, and so there are definitely problems. Well, not only that, but it's kind of a dangerous job. You're going to people's homes. Oh, it's so dangerous. You know, I've seen, and part of the screening process, when they, um, when you make a CPS report, they ask you, like, do you know if there's guns in the home or gang mm-hmm. involvement? Because it is a really dangerous job. It, or dogs. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, and there's part of the law, um, their CPS mandate says they have to have eyes on the child. If it meets a certain criteria, they have to have eyes on the child within a certain amount of hours, right? So they have to just sometimes go to that home, um, you know, but so yeah, I, like I, I said, I'm always so thankful for CPS. I've worked with them for years. I could not do that job, but I have so much um, respect for them. Same, same. I. It would break my heart and, you know, I, I know myself and I would just burn out really quickly. And yeah. And they see <laughs> terrible stuff too. I mean, uh-huh. I, we see a lot of, you know, in this, you're in the child abuse field, you're going to see a lot of trauma. Um, but, you know, they having to go to the house and stuff, it's, I just think it's a different level of trauma um, and they have more cases than I see. So they're just constantly working with high trauma Um you know, things that if you're not in this field, you don't understand are happening every day, you know, things like that. I mean, right. Um, you know, well, most, I mean, that, that alone has the potential to warp your view of the world if you're not absolutely. careful. It does. And it does. Right. It absolutely does. Um, so I'm very big advocate of like, we need to take care of our CPS workers. We need to make sure they have access to therapeutic services. They have self-care for themselves. I, I think there's not a lot of that. Um, that's actually something I'm really passionate about is like, we need to acknowledge what, what they go through. And so I try really hard to support them on cases that, you know, that we work together. I ask them, Hey, how are you doing? You know, just sort of be there for them to talk to. Cause also they just have so many, there's no time to like, I think for them to sit and like process what they're seeing, you know? So yeah. I try to help when I can. Yeah. So what happens when a child who has been in the foster care system ages out? I know this may be kind of like beyond, um, you know, the work that you do, but, you know, what, what sources are available to help these very young adults? Yeah, so I, I don't know a ton about that. So I'm going to um, just talk about what I do know. There are lots of programs to help um, ch- that that um shift or from grow, aging out of the system they say um Life works. They, have, they have stipends i know for college they have living stipends um i believe they get free childcare for a certain age so there's actually there's a lot of stuff they do get um i know there's things that help them like pay for school books or just different programs so um I mean, that's just a really rough thing to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, a lot of the kids I work with are so young um, and I don't always see these cases through to the end. So I don't know. I don't have a ton of experience with that. I do know there are a lot of programs to help support um, kiddos there. There could always be more, but there definitely is a lot of transitional living stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's like programs to help them learn how to like manage money and all this kind of stuff. 
yeah, yeah. LifeWorks is the one I can think of off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah, they're great. Um, but yeah, definitely like through the state, um, they have like a free tuition system. They, you know, so that's awesome. Um, I think part of it too is making sure they know what they have. I don't always know um, that they know what they have access to. Um, right. So I think that sometimes that's part of the issue is actually all these different things they're like able to have like fees waived for and stuff like that, like some housing stuff, but um, just not having access to that, I think is the challenge, knowing where to ask or that you're able to do that. Mm -hmm. So since you work in a medical hospital, I would imagine that from time to time you see a case of like Munchausen by proxy. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know what this is, can you talk about what it is, why it's concerning, how a medical or mental health care professional can spot this, and, and what the general response following report looks like. Yeah, so um, we actually use the term medical child abuse, um, but Munchausen by proxy is what most people know it as. But just so you know, I'm going to refer to it as medical child abuse because that is the official, official name of it. Um, and so Munchausen by proxy is the intentional, it is using the medical system um, typically for attention or for some sort of benefit um, that a child does not need. So that can be medications given to a child, medical appointments, surgeries, um, any a variety of things using the, the medical system um, that is unneeded for a child. Um, and so I'm going to look up the exact definition because I think it'll be really helpful. So um, it refers to a child receiving unnecessary or even harmful care as a result of a parent or caregiver exaggerating symptoms, fag- fabricating symptoms, physical findings, or intentionally inducing an illness in the child. So medical child abuse is really hard to diagnose and sort out because most mm-hmm. of the cases, the child actually does have an element of illness from what I've seen. And this is all just um, from what I have seen in my experience. It does come up, it, it does happen. Um, but usually how it starts out is it's not like a completely healthy child and, you know, parents start doing something nefarious. It's usually a child who has some element of illness, um, like a seizure disorder or developmental delay. Um, but parents will start fabricating extra symptoms or fabricating needs um, or fabricating sort of like what the child can do or their developmental level. Um, And usually that looks like fractured care. So it'll look like parents taking their children um, to multiple different hospitals, multiple doctors. um, So that way, and so that's why it's so hard to diagnose because, you know, by the time someone gets, oh, this is concerning. Hey, mom keeps saying that the child stops breathing at home. We've never seen that, but she keeps taking them to the hospital. They've already moved on to another hospital. Um, so investigating a medical child abuse case takes years. Um, mm-hmm. and it's really, really challenging. Um, oh, sometimes it looks like parents making, making reports, like intentionally making multiple sexual abuse concern reports. Um, and so kids, going through different exams or things like that. So it can look like that. Um, That doesn't, the main thing is sort of this idea of um, a a child already having some sort of illness and and a parent taking advantage of that and fabricating, exaggerating symptoms 
Um, and so really what it looks like in the investigation process is going through piles and piles of documents. Um, and so if there's a concern of that, always make a report to, to CPS. And so usually they will consult um, a child abuse team, medical team, and it takes a lot of collaboration of getting medical records from multiple hospitals, multiple states, states, you know, they move between states. Um, and a lot of the times the caregiver may be um, in the medical field themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they know what to say or have access to drugs or have access or know, know the right, like mostly it's, you know, knowing the right thing to say. Um so it does happen. It probably happens more than we know because it's so hard to diagnose. And also children have real ailments, you know, and you don't want to assume that someone is making something up, but there are different things, you know, after going through lots of documents, um, you know, you can have an inkling, but it's actually a very hard thing to prove. I see why. And there's an ele- element of like doctor shopping there in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, there is too. And that's sometimes too, what's hard is it's like, well, just because someone goes to different doctors, you know, it's important to advocate for like your needs and find the right doctor. Um, And I do think a lot of times pain isn't believed. And, you know, so I do have, I do believe all that, but there's also, there's usually other stuff happening. There may be like mental illness in the caregiver, you know, there's some other maybe like psychosocial red flags happening. um, For sure that kind of maybe, maybe we just need to look into this more and see, okay, it's, you know, looks like they've lived in multiple states and have had, you know, or multiple diagnoses. And then parents um, don't refill that prescription and then, but they say the prescription's not working. So it's like all this, like looking at like really chronologically step-by-step, okay, they were diagnosed with this. This is what they said. This is what the parents reporting. Is there any evidence of that? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, it, it ends up in uh, um, overutilization of, of medical services. Absolutely. It's overutilization um, and it's, you know, it's considered child abuse because it's a child having to go through um, tests or medications or things that they do not need. Um, so mm-hmm. it's a medical over medicalization of the child. Um, but and it's, it's to meet the need of, of the caregiver, really. Yeah, it's it's for the the caregiver is getting and it's so complex what they get out of it, right? Um, right. A lot of times, I, caregivers who engage in medical child abuse, they may have their own trauma history. Um, they may have their own history of physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, neglect. They may have their own. So yes, a lot of the times it is meeting some kind of um, some kind of need, and it's it's absolutely for the for the caregiver for the benefit of the it's- caregiver. It's uh, something we would call like a secondary gain, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's so hard because it's like, what are they gaining? They're gaining attention, or they're gaining sympathy, um, or sympathy, right? That's yeah, right. The sympathy piece. So if you have your own trauma and that trauma hasn't been resolved or, or recognized or seen, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. So one movie that comes to mind about this about medical child abuse that I saw fairly recently is called mommy dead and dearest i I think it's streaming through hbo right now it is um a few questions Mm -hmm. have you seen it or do you generally stay away from like work-related things outside of working hours if you have seen it what are your thoughts on it yeah um so yeah mommy dead and dearest was i think the like one of the bigger 
medical child abuse cases that really was like, because they're so interesting, right? Like, I mean, that documentary is fascinating. fascinating. It. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that stuff is because it's so interesting because it's so complex and so many layers away with it for so many years. But then when it unravels, it like, for one is, ex- and they're not all as extreme as that. Um, yeah. That one was very extreme. Just like, I mean, you know, any kind of, anytime like a documentary or something is made, it's like the most extreme of the cases because that's the most right. interesting. Um, and when it unravels, I mean, they unravel hard, just like that one did. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And definitely after that came out and after the, the Hulu TV show of it mm-hmm. came out, you know, the TV show of the documentary, I had a lot of people asking me questions about um, Munchausen's by proxy, medical child abuse. Um, and so it doesn't usually happen like that. That's a very, you know, rare um, way that that, that kind of went down. Um, but it, it's just fascinating. Look at the psychological, you know, state of the the mom, the child. Um, in terms of what I watch, you know, I'm I'm more picky because I want to avoid secondary trauma is a real thing. You know, right. part of my work is I'm engaged in vicarious trauma, you know, all day essentially. Yeah. Um, so I am picky about what I watch. And I've also been doing this for so long. I, I know the level of what I can take and what I can't. When I first started working in child abuse, I was stricter about like, I don't really want to watch anything like Law and Order SVU or stuff like mm-hmm. that. You know, now I can, I can watch that stuff and it's fine. The ones that are really interesting, I definitely want to watch. Cause also it's like part of my field, you know, it's kind of, yeah. you know, especially if it's a documentary, it's, you know, somewhat educational in the field. And that's such a big case. And, you know, people talk about that a lot. So I think it really depends on what um, the content is. Certain things I really do, like I said, Law and Order SVU, you know, is also the one when I tell people what I work in, they bring up. And I, <laughs> I did take a break of watching that because I just didn't need to hear more sexual abuse stories, you know, on my free yeah. time. Um, but Benson's amazing. So, you know, got pulled back in. <laughs> yeah, I would say I'm picky. Um, and I, but I have a clear sense of when I need to step away from some sort of media. Okay. And, and for our, our listeners who haven't seen Mommy Dead and Dearest, it's basically the story of uh, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who uh, together with her uh, boyfriend murdered her mother. And Gypsy had suffered uh, medical child abuse at the hands of her mother for many, many years, um, you know. Uh, I, I believe she was even uh, that that the mother even said that uh, Gypsy was unable to walk, yeah. and she she even had a, like an unnecessary feeding tube. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot that happens a lot. Yeah, things like feeding tube. So that's a big one too. I think that comes up in medical child abuse cases is parents saying the child needs a feeding tube because they can't swallow, but then when they end up kind of testing it, it's oh this this kid is able to take food down. Um, so yeah, that comes up a lot. Um, yeah, it's just a very fascinating case. And I believe, um, the, the mom, Didi, she was like a nurse's assistant or something. Mm -hmm. She worked somewhere, you know, she was something in the medical field. Um, so she had this sort of like cursory knowledge of medical stuff. So she kind of knew what to say, say what doctors might have red flags about or what medication she could give. I think, cause she, I think she gave you know, some of the like medications Gypsy thought she was taking were actually things making her have symptoms, right? Right. So, um, Dee Dee had access to some of that stuff. So there's usually, there, 
not always, but I think there is some sort of element of like access to the, the medical profession or knowledge of, even if it's just kind of like on the periphery. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> um, I'm try- I feel like there was another one that was a big deal recently. Now I can't remember. Yeah, um, no, I have one. I-, I was thinking about it as we were talking and there's another one that's popping up in my head, but I can't put my yeah. finger on it. The Mommy Dead and Dearest is like the biggest one that I think people know of. Um, but there are a couple other really interesting ones. A couple of good podcasts, I think, that cover um, those cases. Yeah, I'm a huge true crime buff. I, I love yeah. all that stuff. One of my bachelor's degrees was in criminal justice. And nice. I did it really just as a hobby. That way I could take like forensics classes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was fun. Yeah, I'm a big true crime person too. And that's what a lot of times when I say I like and picky and choosy about what media I listen to, I did have to take a break from like the true crime podcasts and stuff. Because mm-hmm. I was like, man, I'm just like entrenching myself in trauma constantly. <laughs> uh, that's probably not a good idea. So I, I did take my own my own break, but I just, I love it so much. And I'm kind of back into listening to them and I feel, I feel good about it. That's good. So, you know, Therapy is a must for survivors of child abuse. What percentage of these survivors would you say actually wind up linked with mental health services? I would say from my experience, a good percentage, if they're, if they outcry, it all depends about when you outcry, right? Um, Because if, I mean, there are people who don't outcry until they're adults about their abuse. That happens often too, right? But if a child makes an outcry young enough, there are networks of support services for them, right? So there are kind of layers to catch to make sure they get into therapy. So if they make an outcry of, I'm just going to say sexual abuse, because also sexual abuse is the most common um, form of abuse that was interviewed at the Child Advocacy Center. So I'm just going to use a sexual abuse example. When they go and get their forensic interview and are asked details of what happened, a lot of times there's a person there who talks to the caregiver and explains to them psychosocial stuff, um, the importance of therapy, things like that. Then when they end up working with me on the medical side, I'm also there kind of as another network of like, hey, you know, caregiver, this is why therapy is important. Here are resources, things like that. Um, and then if CPS is involved, that's another thing CPS will do is make sure the kiddos get therapy. So that's another benefit of CPS is they actually help parents find therapy. Um, but it's challenging. I mean, here in Austin, there are long wait lists. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kiddos who have been victims of abuse have high mental health needs, high instances of suicidal ideation, self-harm. Um, so there's never enough services. So I think that's the biggest challenge. But I do think or there are a lot of networks of people who try to make sure the caregivers understand the importance of getting their kid into therapy schools. I always tell parents, talk to the school counselor, they may have um, resources for therapy or they may be able to provide a couple of sessions. Um, So there are networks there and support systems, but it's just wait lists are really long. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, depending, it all depends on what, what kind of abuse happened, but you know, if there's a kid who has been a victim of continuous sexual abuse, I want, I want to make sure they get with a therapist who is experienced in that and understands those dynamics um, and what that looks like, you know, um, what that might look like for a child um, based on age and what kind of support they need. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say are some misconceptions people have about child abuse 
and the way slash process that this is responded to by both professionals and the state? Mm-hmm. A, a couple things. Um, unfortunately, I think people don't realize how common it is. Um, I think there, which I mean, I, I'm glad that people don't have to know all the stuff I know, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's way more common than you think. So this idea of kind of like, oh, it couldn't happen to this family I know, or it's not happening here. I mean, unfortunately, statistics show um, it does happen more and there are risk factors, right? Um, families who have a lot of stress happening, right? Struggle with um, financial issues, uh, families who are younger, younger parents, you know, there's all different red, red flags. Um, doesn't mean that they happen, you know, in those right, homes, right. but there's things that are kind of, you know, um, that predisposed, predispo- yeah, or an extra challenge or predisposition or, you know, things like that. Um, so it does happen more than you think it happens. Uh, that's mm-hmm. my womp womp kind of <laughs> kind of statement. Um, kids are not just taken from their families. Um, you know, I know that's a big one and a lack of understanding of the CPS system, but there's a lot of people involved in cases. And I'm also, my experience has only been in, um, Austin. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't speak to what it's like in other States or other parts of Texas even. So I I do also want to preface that, that I'm talking about my experience in the Austin County area, Austin, Travis County, Williamson County, um, things like that area. So I, um, can't speak to other places. Right. But in my experience and other people may have had different experiences, you know, yeah, it's not just people take children for no reason. Um, mm-hmm. There, you know, I think the other thing too, is that um, criminal investigations happen very slowly uh, based on watching law and order, or, you know, it seems like, Oh, this gets wrapped up in one ep- episode, but um, I'm always educating parents of um, in criminal investigations happen very slowly. They take months. Um, then the process of going to trial, if that happens, can take years. Um, so I always talk to parents of, hey, you know, what you can focus on is healing. What happens on the criminal side, a lot of times out of your control. Um, but you focus on healing, getting into therapy, healing as a family, things like that. Um, but detectives work on multiple cases at a time and they want to, they need to gather the best information to have the best case possible. So it, it takes a while. Um, so that's, I think another misconception. Um, I think thing too, that we don't, those of us who are in the field, don't just assume things. Um, childhood accidents happen. We, many of us have been parents or taking care of children falls, you know, things totally happen. Um, so we understand that it's not like you, your child has a bruise or breaks their leg or something. And we're gonna, people are going to freak out and think it's child abuse. You know, Mm -hmm. um, there are scientific ways to look at injuries of, and I'm mostly talking about to very young children. Um, but people fall, people hold children and fall, kids fall, like all totally normal. And it's not, it's very much not just like, oh, kid has an injury. We're going to assume, you know, it's some sort of abuse. Um, yeah. I think that's a big misconception. Another thing too, um, I think spanking comes up a lot. Mm, so, that's a good question I didn't ask about. Yeah. So um, 
you are allowed to spank your child in the state of Texas. Um, what you cannot do is cause a injury. So if you spank so hard that you leave a bruise, that would be concerning for child abuse. Um, it goes against the, any medical recommend, spanking goes against every medical body's recommendation of what is best for children. So when I talk about spanking, I say, listen, you know, it's up to you. Um, but there are other ways to engage in positive discipline, things like that. Um, so my recommendation is always against spanking, but, um, it becomes abuse when you're leaving injuries. We do see handprint marks a lot, um, or you're spanking with some sort of item, you know, a cord or things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, uh, a, a big question Recently, the Texas Senate passed a bill that would classify providing gender-affirming medical care to transgender minors as child abuse. Essentially, it would be made illegal for medical providers to provide uh, things like puberty suppression medications, hormone replacement therapy, or perform any type of gender-affirming surgery or procedure. So, hypothetically, if this were to pass... How do you imagine facilities like the hospital you work at would address this if a minor patient presented at the facility and reported being on HRT, for example? Yeah, so this law is complete and utter crap. Um, That's it, bullshit. It's bullshit. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I could curse, but it's bullshit. It also goes against every medical body's recommendation. So it goes against the AMA, um, American... The World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Yeah, yeah, basically every medical body... Um, the um, American uh, APSAC, the American Professional Society for Abuse Against Children. Um, so it goes against every medical recommendation. Um, what I do know is that many um, children's hospitals are lobbying against the bill. Um, so many hospitals have advocacy um, programs within there. Um, and so there is a lot of advocacy happening. Um, so I do not think this will fully pass um, because, it would, because it would literally wreak havoc on the system. Uh, there would be just, I don't think anyone would be able to actually fully look into, it would put an undue burden on child abuse systems on the CPS side, on the medical side, on the long term On the mental health side. Mental health side. I mean, everything. Um, it, it would be a disaster. Um, and uh, most medical professionals agree and are, yeah, actively um, doing what they can to prevent this bill from happening. Um, but it is, like I said, goes against every medical thing we know. Well, I mean, I, I just think that the, the suicide rate, I mean, already the, the, the suicide rate for uh, trans people is 41%, a 41% suicide attempt rate. That is absolutely ridiculous and i think that putting legislation mm -hmm. passing a bill like this would just increase that oh know? it would have complete and that's why medical bodies are against it because it would have complete detrimental mental health effect um on children teens caregivers i mean everyone it would just be detrimental to families um in every way absolutely if it did pass, what would that look like? Just kind of honestly, I I don't even know because I I don't even think they I don't even know how they would put that into process. Um, 
so honest, I wish I could give you a, a better answer of what that would look like, but I, I don't even think it's something that we've talked about because we're just like, this is not gonna <laughs> pat you know, hard. Um, but I don't know what that would look like when it, I don't know how um, agencies, families would deal with that. I, I don't know what it would look like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it better not pass. That's all I've got to say about that. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for speaking about that. And, and mm-hmm. thank you for, you know, saying what you said about it, about it, you know, just not working. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no medical, um, and I know this because I've talked with, my, this has come up on our team. We have talked, we definitely, you know, so when I say, I don't even know what it would look like, I don't want to say, this has come up and we have talked about it. Um, and, you know, like I said, every medical professional body that is of any kind of uh, stature or is um, against it and does not make any sort of medical sense, mental health sense in any way. Um, I mean, if you think about it, if say a kid did come in and they were on say, say it was a, a, a trans male kiddo, mm-hmm. um, you know, if this kid was on HRT, well then you'd have to file a report against the, the parent, Parents, a report yep. against the medical provider. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, for supporting your child. It would, it would have an undue burden also on real cases. So that's another thing too, is it's real, really bad cases, right? If detectives, for example, are caught up trying to having mandated to investigate that situation, they're going to have less time to investigate sexual abuse of a child by an uncle. You know what I'm saying? Like it, yeah. it just, it would take away resources um, from actual trauma that is happening to kids. And I think it's, you know, although it may say be, you know, potentially in the future against the law, that is not unethical conduct for a doctor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so like what would the, the criminal repercussions then be? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, yeah. I'm just kind of, thinking out loud here about what this would look like. Um, yeah. It's just a disaster and it is sad um, because part of um, being anti-child abuse is being supportive of children, right? And their um, development and growth. And so create some, this kind of situation goes against everything that I stand for, my team stands for of um, supporting children and their mental health and their growth, helping children be the best they can be. So it just goes against all of that. I I appreciate you saying that. Um, So let's hope on that. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, another thing I'll mention is it goes against the gender affirmative model, you know, that's Mm -hmm. been studied and is widely accepted as being the best approach toward uh, gender in, in children specifically. Um, enough yeah, about and, my diatribe. <laughs> no, no. And um, you actually brought up a good point when, um, so a lot of times um, kids who, ha- parents will come to me and who are uneducated about gender identity or things like that. Um, and, you know, after a child has been through trauma, they'll say something like, oh, you know, my kiddo seems to be dressing more masculine or, you know, they'll bring that up. And I always say, all that is totally normal. It's, you know, I understand what you're saying. There is no necessarily link, necessarily a link to having been through trauma and gender identity. It's all part of the normal growth process. So I always affirm all of that. And um, that also is 
evidence-based and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Okay. Well, switching to you more so now, and I'm sure I already know the answer to this question. What kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Mm -hmm. Um, That comes up a lot because like I started off saying, um, instances of child abuse are underreported in less vulnerable populations. And I don't want to say overreported in vulnerable populations because I don't think overreported is the right word because I don't think cases of child abuse get reported enough, but, but proportionally they are overreported than versus those of less vulnerable populations, if that makes sense. Misused, maybe. It feels more along that lines. Like, yeah, so I, I, it's um, the, there should be an equal sort of reporting rate and right. response is what I'll say because I don't like saying overreported because that makes it sound like, oh, people then need to stop reporting concerns, you know, and that's mm-hmm. not it. Um, but a lot of times um, vulnerable populations, uh, there are, and I also will say um, in families that have a lot of undue stress on them, financial strain, um, disability, um, less access to services, right? Um, there, that is going to create situations where child abuse can happen, right? If a family is not paid enough for good child care, then they may be desperate for child care and they may have to leave their children and with someone they haven't been able to vet, right? They don't have options for child care. They may ha- so right. situations like that happen um, that just sort of through the situation of being a underserved population, um, a vulnerable population comes up. So that does happen a lot. Um, and so I do work with those populations often, um, population just speak different languages. And my goal is to give them the most aligned care as possible. Um, I recently completed a certificate program on racism in the child welfare welfare system program. So body is like the American association, American professional association for child abuse. Um, we are working towards, having training programs that focus on the IPOC, things like that, um, to give them the most supportive care possible, um, give them services that are lacking, things like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, It's important to me that they receive care in their language that is affirming of their identity Um, all those types of things. So when I am helping them get connected to services, I want to find therapists who um, are, speak the language they speak, right? Um, Have a collected background with them, things like that. So, you know, and I wonder too, you know, going back to race, like, and I, I wonder if there's ways to track this sort of stuff within like the CPS system, like how many calls on like black families are coming from white people, for example, and mm-hmm. you know, those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. I, um, I don't, and I'm curious to wonder if that stuff is tracked too. I don't know if it is um, because the, 
system, they try to make it as anonymous as possible. So like mm-hmm. who makes a report, that information is not like released to like anyone because a lot of times people don't make reports or fear of retaliation. Um, that has actually come up quite a bit. Um, so, but there may be ways they are tracking that. I just don't know of any. And if they're not, they should be. Yeah, and, I agree. Um, and, you know, training on reporting needs to be happening in schools of every socioeconomic status and every community, things like that. Um, so sort of the, the bar should look exactly the same across all of those different lines. Um, and it doesn't, mm-hmm. and that is a problem. And it is something that institutions need to be examining and actively working against and uh, taking anti-racism into account um, in all of their trainings and all that kind of stuff and be tracking those numbers so they can continue to evolve their practices um, to be actively anti-racist. And, you know, abuse is abuse, but I, I would imagine there's also certain cultural considerations to take, mm-hmm. to take yeah. in, you know? There's a famous um, case of that um, that we use <clears throat> when looking at that. Um, in There's a population that uses cupping Mm-hmm. as a form of healing. And so there was a mm-hmm. famous um, situation. It was in like one of my textbooks. Um, I believe it was in Minnesota where there were all these situations um, of abuse reports um, of children because they had these circular bruises mm-hmm. all across their back. Um, and it, after kind of like an understanding what was happening, it was the practice, cultural practice of cupping. So definitely um, there is things. And I, I know the team I work on, we try and take that into consideration as much as possible. Um, That is a big thing that comes up with spanking because spanking Mm -hmm. does happen in some cultures more than others. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really hard because it's, and I always tell families when I talk to them about their practices, um, you know, I say you do what's comfortable and respectful for your family, but with your culture. And so I actually say that, But I will say things like, you know, there is um, research about spanking and here are some ways you could also try. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a big cultural one comes up with spanking. Um, It it definitely comes up, but, you know, not as much as you think, because there's some pretty clear cut. If a baby who cannot walk has 12 broken ribs, you know, I mean, you know, so a lot of the cases and then sexual abuse, um, I think are pretty clear cut Um, perceptions on um, what we view as a child age in terms of sexual abuse, right? There are some cultures where at 13, 14, you're considered an adult or like a woman or a man. And so um, engaging, consenting to sex may not seem um, as big of a deal as it does to say to me. So there are issues that come up surrounding that, um, that can be hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So say a child and their parent are at the hospital and there's some sort of child abuse suspected, Mm -hmm. you know, what is your approach to this? So it all, there's a lot of different things that can happen and it all, it can depend on the age of the child and what the concern is. Um, So I'm trying to use an example. Okay. So if a child comes in, with say they're um, five months old and they have a skull fracture. That happens a lot. Um, it, a That's lot awful. of, I'll say that again. That's awful. 
Yeah. Um, but it, it, there's lots of accidental ways that that can happen. Sorry. People fall with babies all the time. It is totally normal. Um, it, it, so yeah, skull fractures are actually a very common thing that come in um, because caregivers slip on toys or babies roll off the bed. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Never put your baby on a bed unsupervised because they not, you may not think they're rolling, but that's the first time they do a roll and then they roll off the bed. Um, mm-hmm. So all that can happen. And so there are protocols in hospitals where, okay, we have a baby who is under two and has this injury. They go on a pathway, a non-accidental trauma pathway, which means they may get a social worker involved to get a full history and to get a full detailed account of what happens. And they do a medical workup. So then they look for, are there other injuries, you know, and they may get a full history in the medical workup. And the only injury is a skull fracture. And mom is saying, she tripped on the stairs and her and baby fell. Well, that's totally fine. So there CPS wouldn't be, you know, called or anything like that. That is a normal household fall. But, but a case where CPS might be called is if mom has like a seizure and is carrying baby or if like, yeah, but that's more stuff that hasn't really come up. It's more so um, mom, notices she's bathing baby and there's like a boggy what would say like a boggy spot on the head um and so she brings baby in and it turns out baby has a skull fracture and there's no history Mm -hmm. mom and dad say i don't know how this happened well if this baby's five months old they didn't do this to themselves or three months old they didn't you know there should be a history of what happened and the history should make sense so Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure the situation you brought up happens but in my four or five years of doing this, that's not, it's more so that kind of thing where, okay, we have a baby with an injury that could not have happened to themselves without anyone knowing we have a concern or, okay, mom says there was a fall, you know, so we do our protocol and it turns out there's also, there's multiple fractures, right? Um, that doesn't really make sense medically with the story. So, so it gets some children get on a pathway of, okay, there's a concern. Doesn't mean we're going to call CPS. It just means we want to look at some more medical stuff to give us more data, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then if it's sexual abuse, um, so that's, that's a physical abuse kind of example. Um, so if a child comes in with sexual abuse, there's a couple of things that can happen. First off, if they make an outcry sexual abuse, the social worker would make a law enforcement and CPS report. And um, a safe, a sexual assault forensic exam could happen um, if the assault happened within a certain hour time frame. And with different law enforcement jurisdictions, that time frame is different. The most would be 120 hours. So if a child makes an outcry of t- sexual abuse within 120 hours of that abuse happening, they will have a sexual assault forensic exam by a sexual assault nurse examiner. And in that exam, they're looking to see if there's any evidence. Very rarely there is, but they check. And they also do things like run for pregnancy, uh, STIs, um, all kinds of stuff. If a child makes an outcry and law enforcement has to approve those exams. So they say, okay, is, does it meet the the qualifications for this? Meaning it happened within the right time frame, and they're outcrying to touching or something, some sort of skin to skin contact. If it happens within less, more than that time frame, meaning child makes an outcry that someone, something happened two years ago, 
they will end up most likely getting a non-acute sexual abuse exam. And so my team gets involved where I, where I work in the non-acute sexual abuse exams. And so that's really a comprehensive um, appointment they have where we do get psychosocial information, make sure the family has access to counseling, understanding what happened, screen kiddos for mental health concerns. And there usually is an exam done um, to see if there's any permanent injuries. There wouldn't be any, you know, obvious um, evidence to collect, but just checking to make sure that the kiddo is healthy. Um, and the kiddos can do that or they cannot do that. It's totally up to them. The non-acute, all, everything is up to them. Everything in these processes are created to be trauma-informed. You know, something bad happened to them and they did not have a say over their body, but all of these processes, they have a say over. They don't have to do anything they do not want to do. Um, and that is like our number one guiding point. Um, we tell kids that they're the boss. We tell them, here are these options. You can pick whatever combination of them you want. So um, all these processes are made to be as trauma-informed as something like this could be. Okay, I see. And, and what I was getting at earlier with the example about, like, say, a mom having a seizure and falling with her baby is like, maybe the mom isn't taking care of herself. Maybe she's not taking the necessary medications. You know, that would, uh, it was just more so to give an example of like another type of potential uh, report that could be made. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that would definitely, if that happens, they would probably get more information. Okay, mom, do you have medication? Okay, you are taking medication. So yeah, I think, but if mom says, oh, I have medication, but I don't take it, mm -hmm. I think that would could be concerning enough for me and I would make a CPS report. Um, mom has, you know, something that may um, inhibit her ability to take care of a child. Um, not necessarily that it's going to go to this, oh, removal, anything like that, but right. hey, this may need some resources to um, make sure they can afford medication, right? They may need to know where they can get medication from. So yeah, absolutely. Um, if that situation came up, I would make a CPS report and feel confident that's the right thing to do. Gotcha. Okay. How would you say your patients describe or experience you? Um, so I, so a lot of what I do, I talk to caregivers a lot. So I work with kids and caregivers and a lot of what I'm doing with caregivers is education, but I try to come from the most empathetic place I can. Cause so when I talk to caregivers, they're the protective caregivers, meaning they're not anyone who's been a perpetrator of abuse. Um, so they just went through something terrible too. They, these are caregivers who realize that their child has been mm -hmm. physically, sexually abused by someone they probably know too. So they, they're through a trauma. So I come at it at that lens. I am not only educating them about their child, but about themselves, what they may be going through, making mm -hmm. sure they have resources for therapy, just asking them how they're doing, you know, before I start off anything, I sit and ask them how they are. So I try to be as empathetic and gentle as possible because sometimes we're doing this so long, you know, you're like, we know all the information and the data, but this is totally new to them and nothing they ever expected to happen. So I think I try to be as patient and empathetic as I can. Okay. Do you laugh or cry with your patients? Absolutely. Um, I, part of that is um, cry. I, I, I think cry has happened. And if I say that, I'll say, you know, I'll name it in the session and say, Hey, you know, um, what you're, 
what you're saying is moving, you know, name it. But I, I think laughing happens a lot more because, mm-hmm. you know, they'll make jokes and, you know, it's, it's sort of that breaking that ice piece of it. Um, so absolutely. Um, laughing is just a part of human nature and um, creating safe space. And so I think we definitely building rapport. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, laughing is part of building rapport and, you know, part of processing and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you define holding space for someone? I think it, it, kind of what I talked about in that when the kid comes in, you know, they, they are seen as like the victim and all these services for them. But um, I make it a point to hold space for the caregiver by allowing them to have space to express what they're feeling. You know, a lot of parents, understandably so, are so caught up with getting their kid connected to therapy. They like haven't even thought of themselves um, at all. So I make it a point to bring up their emotions and their self-care. And I talk with them, what are some self-care things you you can do and who are people you can talk to, you know, um, and talk about the benefits of therapy. I'm all about preaching the benefits of therapy. So, you know, oh, yeah. um, I, and holding space for them is I think educating them that they have, there's a place they can go that space is held for them, if that makes sense. Um, so I, and it's a bummer, you know, I don't always have as much time with caregivers as I would love. Um, so I'm kind of using what I can, what I am, you know, what I have to, to make it work. Um, but building that rapport and giving them an opportunity to share in normalizing, I think is a big one, whatever they're feeling is normal. They may be sad, mad, frustrated at the child. They may want to still talk to, and this is the same for children too. All these things are normal. They may still want to talk to the perpetrator that did this to them. They may still love them, you know, so normalizing all those things um, because they may be embarrassed about these feelings. Yeah. And I mean, you don't want to come in hard because then that person is just going to get defensive and shut down. Oh, absolutely. Um, And there's no like right way to hear that someone you love abused your child, you know, or someone you cared about or someone, you know, so any, as long as they're being protective, that's fine. Any emotion they're feeling is a normal part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. What's the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? I think, um, the, what I named earlier of that metaphor, um, using that to help explain child abuse, it was hearing that was so helpful because I get the question all the time. Why wouldn't my kid have told me when it happened? I, every time almost I work, um, especially victims of sexual abuse, their parents are, I don't understand, you know, doesn't my kid feel safe with me? Like, why wouldn't they have said something? And that's why I use that analogy of it's like jumping off a cliff, hoping there's a net. Um, you know, kids don't outcry because they're scared. They're scared of retaliation. They're scared it may break up their family. They don't want to hurt the person they love. They know it's going to make their mom or dad sad or, you know. Um, and so when my, it was a supervisor who told me that analogy. And I was like, man, that is one I can use um, because mm-hmm. I think it's really impactful. And I think, um, and I, and part of that is telling parents, it doesn't mean your child doesn't trust you. It doesn't mean they don't love you. It is normal for a child not to outcry right after it happened because it's confusing. Right. Yeah. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your experiences as a social worker? Um, humor is definitely healing. Um, and 
when you're in a high trauma field, relationships are really important. Um, I couldn't do what I do without my coworkers um, who I'm able to talk to, to be in this with, right. To Mm -hmm. be in the trenches with, of this, seeing this every day. Um, Relationships are important way to deal with what you're seeing. And so having strong coworkers, coworkers you trust, um, by your side through all this in any field, in any kind of, I think, social work field where you're, you're seeing a lot of stuff. Um, you need to have people who are working around you that you can process with or, um, use humor. Be silly with. Yeah. Yeah. Be silly with. Exactly. The, that is, I mean, um, there is no value you can put on how important that is, um, in dealing with all this. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, given all the different types of things you see in a day, what do you do to take care of yourself? Spending time with um, friends, you know, being with my dog, um, knowing when it's becoming too much um, and knowing which kind of cases are hard for me. Um, You know, it's hard to say because I think my answer would have been different four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's a lot of spending time you know, having clear boundaries on my work day, um, not carrying work later. Um, it's kind of funny working from home because I was really strict about not taking work home with me. Um, mm-hmm. now, you know, we're all kind of working from home. So that's been kind of a new boundary that's, um, had to kind of work with, but things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think spending time with family and friends is the most important, just spending time like away from that world. Yeah. Yeah. How would you define happiness? I guess for me, happiness is comfort in a way or or comfort in what I'm doing or or taking pleasure from what I'm doing. Um, Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to put a definition on happiness, but yeah, comfort and joy. um, Yeah, those are the things coming to me. It's not a perfect answer. Comfort and joy. No, that's a good answer couple uh, vulnerable questions. Mm-hmm. What is the most embarrassing moment you've had on the job? Oh, man. Most embarrassing moment. I'm sure I've had many. Um, I'm pretty good at being able to laugh them off. Um, I'm, sh- uh, I'm sure I've... Yeah, I'm sure I've, like, walked in with, like, food on my scrubs or something. I don't know. I'm trying to <laughs> it, but I can't think of anything particularly embarrassing right now, but I'm I bet not because it didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm embarrassed myself all the time, but I'm just, I, it's part of my personality. I feel like so I'm good at just kind of laughing them off. By the way, it must be nice to wear scrubs like at, at work. Oh my gosh. I love wearing scrubs. It's basically just putting on pajamas and getting, yeah. Them. Yeah. Get being able, when I started working at a hospital, I was like, I'm so into wearing scrubs. Um, I love it. Next uh, vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes, I am in therapy. And that was actually, I meant to add that as part of my self-care um, or how I, you know, take care of myself after all this, um, definitely therapy, um, therapy just to, you know, and I think I talk about it less in therapy than I used to. Um, but I absolutely believe that those of us who are holding space for others or 
holding space for other people's trauma, um, definitely need to have our own outlets. Um, so yeah, I, I go to therapy. I recommend uh, very open about the fact that I go to therapy my coworkers know I go to therapy. Um, I recommend it, you know, for any therapist. Um, and so, yeah, I've been in therapy on and off for years. Um, I, I think it's just like going to a doctor, right? I take care of my body by going to a doctor and I take care of my mental health by seeing a therapist um, and having space to process if there's a particularly hard case. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's just sort of time in the field, but it definitely, it doesn't come up as much as it used to, but I think mm-hmm. it's important to have, always have therapy there as an outlet if I do need to talk about something. Agreed, agreed. Now, you mentioned right now you're currently in supervision to get your LCSW. I am. So I, uh, at my previous position, I was working on my LCSW. Um, I, at my position I'm at now at the hospital, I have not started working on it again. So I'm not actively working on it. Um, I own, but I have a very, only have like less than half a year left to finish it. Yeah. It's so, yeah, I kind of, when I switched positions, um, I was kind of in a, kind of made it a little funky and then I was going to start it up again. And then the pandemic. Like I was in the process of looking at uh, supervisors and then the pandemic happened and it just sort of changed everything, obviously. Um, And so I am very close to getting my LCSW. So I do have plans to finish that. Do you know what you want to do after that? Are you going to stay in the hospital or are you going to? My goal, I think, is to work with kids individually to do um, work with high trauma kids um, on, you know, long term therapy. I love working with kids, you know, no matter what they've gone through, kids are fun and silly and, you know, you get to use really fun ways to process the world around them. Color, toys, sand tray, Play-Doh. I mean, you can use that stuff with adults too, and we should, (laughs) Um, but yeah. So I, in some capacity, I don't know exactly what, but I want to be working with children. um, And I think I'd love to work on them with them individually. I was hoping that's what you would say because we, we, we need more people doing that kind of work. We do. There's not enough. Um, not nearly enough. There's never enough. There's always wait lists. There's always, um, and I think therapists who have an understanding of what it's like to be in the foster care system or what it's like to just going through this process or the dynamics of sexual abuse and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yes, I definitely, I, because I've been able to have these experiences, I definitely want to do, you know, some sort of practice and work with kiddos. Awesome. Will you keep me up to date about that? Um, (laughs) Well, Sydney, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other medical or mental health professionals to know about you and or the topic of child abuse? I think with child abuse, I know, especially in your professional world, it's scary, right? But there's sort of what I go by is if you, if it's enough to have a concern, make, just make a report also to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. That's an important reason why, but it is a reason, right? right? You need to protect yourself. Um, You are mandated by law. Leave it up to the professionals. That's what I, when I do trainings, because I also do trainings in the community, um, let the professionals look at this because there are maybe elements you don't know um, that they may know. And so don't put it on your head, you know, your, your shoulders to decide. Your job is not to investigate. (laughs) Your job is not to investigate. It's not even my job to investigate. You know, I do not investigate cases. So I, I always, you know, I, 
they are the ones who are mandated to investigate. But if you have a suspicion and if you're waffling between make a report, don't make a report, make a Just report. Make, yeah. um, keep that, keep that report number. They'll give you like a number usually starts at seven. Keep that. You did your due diligence. Um, and if you, if there's some reason you're not sure, seek supervision about it, you know, talk to your, um, your peers or, um, your supervisor, but you, but I, I'm sure they would say, just go ahead and make the report. And if it doesn't meet requirements, they will just close it. And nobody will know if, if you have to make a report on a family, you see that family will not know if that you made the report, if they just close it, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I've had to name in sessions that I made a report and stuff. And there's ways to, to have name if you have to, for, for some reason you have to name that you made a report, um, do it. But in, even if you get information where, you know, maybe mom says, Oh, I just found out that my sister, I'm just making up a thing, but like has been doing drugs around her one-year-old, you know, um, make a report on that too, because even if it's not your client, um, that safety of that kid is number one, you right. know? So, um, the other thing I think is really important. If a child makes an outcry of abuse to you, you may be the only person they made an outcry to. So if you do nothing, they're going to think, well, if I make an outcry, the adults just do nothing. Right. So you may be the one person out of all the adults in their life, they felt safe. So it is your, your job to protect them. Um, don't, and I'm going to go a little bit, I think, into like how to respond if a child makes an outcry, um, don't ask them a lot of questions and don't make promises. So sometimes what a kiddo would do is come to you and say, Hey, I, you know, I have something I want to tell you, but do you promise you won't tell anyone? Um, never make a promise. Always say, you know, um, thank you for trusting me. I, you know, I don't know what you're going to tell me. And my job is to make sure you and other kids are safe. So, I may have to tell other people, but you know, it's because of safety. Always bring it back to safety. And a lot of times mm-hmm. still will say, um, and don't ask them a ton of questions, get enough information to make a report. So if they say, you know, someone touched me inappropriately, get enough to understand, is this somebody in the home, but don't, don't ask them a bunch of questions about it. Leave that up to the professionals. Right. And say, thank you for trusting me. I'm going to you know, do what I can to make sure you're safe. Um, that kind of stuff, but don't ask him a lot of questions about it. Don't ask him dates. Don't ask him timeframes, like anything like that. Just get enough information you need to make the report. Okay. You're saying it's, you know, what's the name of this person? Okay. That kind of thing. Got it. Got it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Sydney. I'm I'm really glad that families and kiddos have you as a, a resource and advocate. Thanks. And if anyone has, I'm open to, if anyone has questions about anything I've said, you know, I'm happy to chat about it or any other things come up. Um, it's a sticky topic. And so I want to help people make it as unsticky as possible. Appreciate that. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Samantha Meyer.
LPC Associate, supervised by Natasha Justin, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, mental health accessibility, and mutual aid. NextQuest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.